The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Last week we kind of led up to the formation of the OPC, which was started on June 11th of 1936. Uh, You remember in 1929, these are kind of the most important dates in OPC history. 1929 is the formation of Westminster Seminary. Um... Then a couple years later, 31 or 33, I can't remember actually, the formation of the Independent Board of Foreign Missions with Machen and other conservatives who were uh, upset by uh, liberalism on the mission field. We had missionaries like Pearl Buck, who was um, pretty much explicitly non-Christian in her missionary approach, and yet was an official missionary of the PCUSA in China. Um, so they formed this Independent Board of Foreign Missions to support missionaries who were going to teach the Bible and uh, actually be seeking conversion on the mission field and not, as Pearl Buck wanted, just to be kind of a conversation about what we believe. Um, Machen and others, not just Machen, he's, he's the one who gets talked about the most, but Machen and others are tried uh, for their participation and in, in the independent board um, for tried for failing to, to support the church. Um, so Machen, in 1936, his... Uh, his suspension from the ministry is upheld by the General Assembly, and um, he and others go uh, a couple a week or so later and form a new church called the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, at this time, the OPC in the early days, remember there were 34 ministers at the First General Assembly. Um, it was a small group. Uh, a few years in, it was only uh, about 5,000 people ha- had come to, to be a part of OPC congregations. And at the time, the PCUSA is approaching 2 million people. Um, so the OPC is just a little drop in the bucket. Then, as it, as, as it really is now, uh, at about 30,000 people. Many conservatives chose to remain out of the church. Um, some prominent names like Clarence McCartney, who had been uh, a stalwart voice against liberalism, decided to con- continue in the PCUSA. And Donald Barnhouse, uh, who is the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which is now a prominent PCA church. Um, When the OPC was formed, it's formed out of the Northern Presbyterian Church. So as you might guess, there aren't any OP churches in the South. Uh, We'll either talk today or or next time about some of the early churches in the South. But um, the southernmost churches, there's one in Maryland, uh, Sandy Springs, Maryland, fairly early on. Uh, There's actually a church in Kentucky, but it's it's really Cincinnati. It's just across the river from Cincinnati. but not really churches as uh, kind of south as we would think today or might be part of the, I don't know why that's buzzing, the Presbytery of the Southeast or the Presbytery of the South. Um, the first <coughs> church um, that's really south is going to be in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in uh, 1943. Um, and you can decide whether or not Fort Lauderdale, Florida is in the south, but it's, it's in the southward direction anyway. Um <coughs> It's a church, you might not be surprised, started by a bunch of northerners who are going to Florida. Um, so this lesson is going to be about you know, the first 10 years of the OPC history, hopefully. Um, and I think it's an interesting lesson about the identity of the OPC. Uh, there's a lot of conflict early on about what the church is going to be and what its identity is going to be. Um, I texted Matthew a few weeks ago. He said maybe the definition of, of Presbyterian is, is people who are willing to debate the pr- definition of Presbyterian. Um, and that's really the conflict uh, 
you know, a lot of the time from, from the new side, old side controversy in the 1700s, the old side, new side, or the old school, new school controversy in the 1800s, um, to some degree through the fundamentalist modernist debate, and then in the early days of the OPC, is, is what does it mean for us to be Presbyterian? And the OPC is going to come down on the side of um, we're going to be an ordinary, uh, ordinary means of grace, confessional Presbyterian church that functions in a Presbyterian way, that worships in a Presbyterian way, uh, in a Reformed way. Uh, and we're um, okay being that, even though that is in some ways going to separate us from other Christians who are, are different. Um, and you can like or dislike the way the OPC comes down. Um, lots of people, lots of godly people have disliked it and still dislike it today. Uh, and, and again, we're still a very small denomination today, um, partly because of the, the self-identification of the OPC. Um, but I think a lot of what we have now as a church was established in these early years. A big part of that was uh, the continuation of the fundamentalism and dispensational and, and premillennial uh, movements that entered into the OPC. Remember, we talked about the fundamentals, these um, articles that were published in the 1910s that began to define a movement called fundamentalism. Uh, Machen said in the 20s, he wasn't a fundamentalist, but a Calvinist. I think what Machen really meant is, I'm a confessional Presbyterian. Um, Many of the uh, conservatives, uh, who, some of which would join the, the OPC, were intentionally fundamentalists and particularly premillennialists in their eschatology. Um, Premillennialism is often, although not always, associated with dispensationalism, which, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is, uh, at least in some forms, contrary to the Westminster Standards and the teaching of the covenants in in the Westminster Standards. Um, Daryl Hart and John Meather uh, say, fundamentalism, however, has a more precise definition than mere opposition to liberalism, it also stands for certain theological emphases, among which are dispensational theology, revivalistic techniques of soul winning, <clears throat> prohibitions against worldly entertainments, and a low view of the institutional church. A, lo- a low view of the institutional church. I think in some ways you could say the, the fundamentalism movement is in a lot of ways analogous to the New School movement that we learned about in the 1830s. Um, the, uh, you know, they're both Presbyterian, both kind of sides are Presbyterian, both identifying as confessional Presbyterian, but their emphases are, are different. And um, I think, at least according to those on the, new, the old school side, are um, not being as intentionally confessional, con- intentionally Presbyterian, but um, kind of partaking in the broader evangelical conservative Christian movements of the day. So this t- tension is present in the early days of the OPC. Um, you have fundamentalists like um, J. Oliver Buswell and Carl McIntyre, two prominent names. Um, among other things, they were displeased with uh, the Westminster Seminary faculty's unwillingness to condemn uh, the use of alcohol. And the divide here in many ways is kind of the Westminster Seminary faculty crowd um, and then the other party out, uh, you know, apart from the, the Westminster Seminary uh, faculty. Um, part of the um, concern on the kind of the fundamentalist side was that the Westminster Seminary faculty, faculty which had four um, people who were not of American descent, uh, basically that these foreigners didn't know how Americans do 
Presbyterianism. So you have John Murray, uh, who um, was in the OPC for a long, long time. Uh, he went back to Scotland uh, late in his life, <coughs> um, I think in the 70s maybe. Uh, John Murray was, was Scottish. And then you have four Dutchmen who are on the Westminster faculty, Cornelius Van Til, uh, Ned Stonehouse, and R.B. Kuyper. Um, so these men were, among other things, there are were, there were many other things, but among other things, they were uh, not prohibitionists or teetotalers. They were okay with the moderate use of alcohol. The fundamentalists said, no, uh, we, it's uh, bad for our Christian witness for us to use alcohol at all, as fundamentalists would say today. Um, J. Oliver Buswell, he was prominent in, among other things, was he was president of Wheaton College, which was a uh, um, uh, important evangelical institution then as it is now. Um, like Machen, Buswell had been tried and removed from the PCUSA due to his participation in the Independent Board of Foreign Missions. Um, in 1936, at, just after the OPCs formed, Buswell and Machen have some correspondence about the Schofield Reference Bible. We don't have record of Buswell's letters, um, but Machen replies expressing his concern about the use of the Schofield Reference Bible, which is one of the prominent um, dispensationalist texts. Um, Machen says the root error, or one of the many root errors of the dispensationalism of the Schofield Reference Bible seems to me, to be the utter failure to recognize and make central the fact of the fall of man. As one reads Schofield's notes, one does not, for the most part, get the slightest inkling of the fact that anything irrevocable took place when Adam fell. After his fall, man continued to be tested in successive dispensations. Thus, Schofield's view of the Mosaic law is rooted in a wrong view of sin, a wrong view which is against the very heart and core of the Reformed faith. Um, So Machen thought Schofield's um, dispensational theology was unconfessional and ultimately unbiblical. Machen says, blessed inconsistencies in some part of the Schofield's notes do not present it, prevent the main impact of dispensational teaching from being extremely bad. Um, so he says, you know, there are good parts, but on the whole, this dispensational theology is bad. Now, most of the premillennialists in, these, in the OPC, at least, uh, would have identified as um, premillennialists, but not necessarily dispensationalists. Um, so they, you know, those are able to be separated, but they also tended to be very um, defensive of dispensationalism. Uh, John Murray, who's a young man at this time in his 30s, um, is, is writing against premillennialism and, and dispensationalism uh, in the Presbyterian Guardian, which was an independent magazine, but really kind of the unofficial magazine of the OPC, kind of the the prototype of what's now New Horizons. Um, in 1936, May, uh, Murray wrote uh, about dispensationalism as the, um, a modern uh, a substitute for the Reformed faith, a modern substitute for the Reformed faith. Murray thought dispensationalism destroys the unity of the covenant of grace. And, and he actually said, no, I'm not specifically attacking premillennialism uh, as necessarily being unreformed, uh, but... Uh, challenging the broader dispensational framework that often premillennialism fit into. Um, at the same time, or similar time, R.B. Kuyper, who he, I think in 37 is going to become an OP minister. At the time, R.B. Kuyper is a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, which for many years the OPC was very, very close to. Um, R.B. Kuyper 
reported back to the Christian Reformed Church that candidates for the ministry in the OPC were being uh, examined at the First General Assembly about the errors of Arminianism and dispensationalism. His, his report to the CRC gets published in a magazine, uh, and it, it really offends Carl McIntyre, who um, was... Uh, um, by all accounts, a fairly uh, difficult man for people to work with. McIntyre um, doesn't like what Arby Kuyper says. He's, he's a premillennialist. He's very defensive of dispensationalism. And he, um, he responds with a very critical uh, article in uh, some magazine. I can't remember uh, which one. Maybe the Presbyterian Guardian. Critics criticizing what, what Kuyper says. And... Um, and claiming that Kuiper is trying to push the, the premillennialists out of the church. <coughs> um, for, according to Hart and Meether, quote from them, um, he claimed, he being Carl McIntyre, claimed that the majority of the OPC was premillennialist and that the church was committed to eschatological liberty. He added the warning that a premillennial uprising would ensue if Kuiper did not cease his veiled and continued attacks. Um, so maybe Kuiper's words were overly strong, but uh, Carl McIntyre really comes back swinging. Um, and again, it's important that um, Kuiper uh, was speaking against dispensationalism, not specifically premillennialism, but um, Carl McIntyre took that as an assault on premillennialism as well. So the second General Assembly uh, of the OPC happens also in 1936. Now we have General Assembly typically once a year. Um, there wasn't one during COVID, but otherwise, I think since 1939, they've occurred once a year. In, in 36 and 39, there were two General Assemblies, um, and it, it can meet as much as it, it desires. Um, at the second General Assembly, they faced a debate over whether or not they would add some kind of statement to the Constitution of the OPC uh, promoting eschatological liberty, saying that it's okay for premillennialists to be part of the church as well. Uh, Machen comes in trying to promote peace by nominating J. Oliver Buswell to be moderator of the assembly. Um, the moderator runs the meeting, um, but in many ways uh, has opportunity to steer uh, the way a meeting goes. Um, even though he serves on behalf of the body, he's not, it's not like a king over the body, but he has uh, a lot of um, power there. And Machen says, you know, I'm going to um, nominate my friend, but also in some ways opponent on some of these matters, J. Oliver Buswell. And Buswell's elected. Um, the Presbyterians of California and New Jersey um, send overtures to the assembly, basically acting, asking the assembly to act, um, uh, requesting uh, an explicit stance of liberty with respect to eschatology. The, the overture from New Jersey says, we respectfully overture the General Assembly to adopt a declaration setting forth in clear and unambiguous language that there is and should be absolute liberty and no discrimination between man and local churches because of the particular views which they may hold concerning the personal return of our Lord, whether this be premillennial, all-millennial, or post-millennial. Um, the, the overture from the Presbytery of California notes that the men of the Presbytery are almost uniformly premillennial. Um, I think that was actually a pretty small crowd. There are only a handful of churches in California at this point, um, so it's not like that's you know 50, 50 guys. But um, but a few of the 
the few men that were part of the presbytery, mostly premillennial. So the assembly debates this, um, and then ultimately decides not to to vote on a um, to add any kind of statement to the constitution of the of the church granting this liberty. And those on the kind of opposing this thought that the Westminster standards w- was sufficient here, in that uh, the standards don't actually uh, take at least a very clear position on um, the timing of ty- Christ's return. Um, which is something that's been debated, I think, since the, the age of the, uh, the confession was written. But in 33.3, in the confession, the last paragraph of the confession, as Christ would have us be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly and their adversaries. So will he have the day unknown to men uh, that they may shake off all carnal security and be, always be watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Um, so, the, you know, the, on the whole, people thought we didn't need a statement saying premillennialism is allowed um, because the, the confession doesn't even uh, seem to rule it out. Um, the assembly also debated whether or not to receive the 1903 amendments to the Westminster Confession. We talked about that uh, three or four weeks back. Um, they, the PCUSA amended the confession, made several small changes, and then added t- uh, two chapters, one on the Holy Spirit and one on the gospel, missions in the gospel. Uh, conservatives, many of the conservatives had considered these added chapters to be Arminian uh, in bent. And remember that kind of led up to the, the um, Arminian Cumberland Presbyterian Church reuniting with the PCUSA. Um, no one probably in the early days of the OPC was particularly in favor of these chapters uh, outside of the fact that uh, some, specifically Carl McIntyre, were in fights with the PCUSA over keeping their building. So when there are these kind of denominational church splits, there are often legal fights in the civil courts over who's entitled to the building. Um, Carl McIntyre pastored in in New Jersey, uh, but just outside of um, Philadelphia. I think five or six miles from Center City, Philadelphia. So, uh, so r- really, you know, right in the city of Philadelphia, but in New Jersey. Um, so his church was in a fight over their building. Um, they wanted to keep the building. And they thought by um, keeping the confessional standards the same, they could make the better case that we are the rightful heir of the PCUSA, that it's not us who's changed, but the PCUSA has drifted, um, so the OPC is the continuing church and, and the rightful heir. Um, so that, that was a contentious topic in the assembly, and ultimately the assembly uh, rejected these new um, chapters. But it did end up keeping some of the minor modifications uh, to the confession. So after the second assembly, um, really on the whole, kind of the Westminster Seminary crowd, uh, which is more of the kind of old-school confessional Presbyterian crowd, um, somewhat won the day. They voted down uh, something, you know, adding something about premillennialism. They voted down keeping these amendments to the, the confession. Uh, um, so at this point, um, you have three institutions, the OPC, Westminster Seminary, and the Independent Board of Foreign Missions, which immediately the OPC isn't sending its own missionaries. It's continuing to support uh, independent board missionaries. <coughs> and all of those institutions are kind of controlled by the Westminster men, um, Machen and, and his um, followers, 
at Westminster. And that creates a tension uh, with um, some on the more kind of fundamentalist side, again, particularly Carl McIntyre, um, who never seemed to be very happy about much, but he wasn't happy about this in particular. So immediately after that second assembly, which happens in, uh, I think it's October or something, um, the Independent Board of Foreign Missions, which is still independent of the OPC, uh, meets and they vote Machen out as president of the assembly, which is within the right of the board to do. Um, uh, not the assembly, the, they vote him out as, as president of the board and of the Independent Board of Foreign Missions. Uh, it's within their right to do, but Machen had, you know, in many ways helped found this and, and led it for five years. Um, but it was kind of an uh, attack on uh, the perceived control of the Westminster crowd on all these institutions. That's one thing they can do is replace Machen on the independent board. And he was replaced by a man who pastored a, an independent church in, in Delaware, so not even by another OP man. Um, this was a big blow to Machen. Um, it left him mentally and physically exhausted. He told his sister-in-law on the phone that night, they kicked me out as president. It's the hardest blow I've had yet. I'm done for now. Now everything is in the hands of men who haven't the slightest notion of the issues at stake. Everything I've worked for, loved, and suffered for has been kicked out of me. I feel it's the end for me. This time they finished me. Um, and I, you know, I think that is maybe a little dramatic on, on Machen's part, but you know, uh, this, is, this is the same night which this happens. You can imagine that it was, uh, he felt the blow uh, of that, and it, it's reasonable that he might have even overstated it. Um, but he writes to J. Oliver Buswell, who again is on the other side from him, but his friend. Um, he writes to J. Oliver Buswell a couple weeks later, the parting of ways has been uh, that the replacing Machen from the board is uh, the parting of ways between a mere fundamentalism on one hand and Presbyterianism on the other hand. Um, so again, Machen's desire is to be a confessional Presbyterian. Um, and uh, he felt that the fundamentalists, although they were Presbyterian and they you know, had a high regard for the Westminster standards, they were not, uh, their Christian um, life and ministry wasn't being structured by that in the way that Machen thought was appropriate. All right, so that's uh, kind of fall of 1936. The OPC is only three or four months old. Uh, Machen is in his 50s at this point. Um, that winter, 19, I guess it would have been even uh, December of 1936, uh, probably right after Christmas, Machen is scheduled to go out and speak to um, three OP churches in North Dakota. Um, I've never been to North Dakota, but my understanding is Winter is not the best time to visit. Um, and Machen is already sick when he's at home. His family discourages him from taking this trip. Um, but there are three um, churches, I think pastored by a graduate of Westminster Seminary, so a friend of Machen. Uh, he pastors these three little churches. Uh, his name is Samuel Allen. Um, and Machen's desire is to go support and encourage these churches. And so he wants to keep his, his engagement. Uh, he takes a train out to North Dakota. <coughs> um, Samuel Allen can see that Machen's not doing well from when he arrives. Uh, and while he's there, he uh, develops pneumonia. Uh, and there's an account, Samuel Allen's account of Machen uh, you know, take, driving him an hour to the hospital. Uh, he's in pretty rough shape. He's admitted to um, a hospital in Bismarck, North Dakota, um, and, and is in there for a couple days. 
uh, not, not doing well. And, and it's there that he'll die on, on January 1st of 1937. And the OPC is only six, seven months old. Machen's final words famously were a telegram to John Murray that he dictated to his nurse. Um, the account that uh, Samuel Allen gives is that Machen is kind of in and out of, of consciousness at this point. But at one point where he's, he's got it together, he dictates to his nurse, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That's, that's sent as a telegram to John Murray. Uh, Murray later writes an article about this. Um, he says, uh, The active obedience of Christ refers to that undefiled and undefilable righteousness of Christ that is his as our representative and substitute in virtue of perfect obedience to the divine law. It is that righteousness imputed to the believer that justifies the sentence of justification and the proper ground of reception into the divine favor and title of everlasting life. Um, so Machen um, doesn't just, um, or, or the active obedience of Christ is not Christ just dying for the penalty, uh, but Christ um, living and dying to uh, guarantee us everlasting life with Christ. Uh, and that was Machen's final thought as he was dying was that uh, how, how blessed he was by the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. I think it's interesting to think then about, you know, Machen. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, but, um, you know, Machen, again, he's independently wealthy. Uh, he's single his whole life. Uh, he can kind of do whatever he wants. He has, has a pretty comfortable job. Uh, although, you know, he invented for himself probably a lot more work by going to Westminster Seminary. Uh, but Machen could have lived the life, you know, whatever life he wanted, doing whatever he wanted. Um, but here this uh, wealthy, uh, elite uh, man from Baltimore um, decides that it's worth, um, even in sickness, going to encourage some struggling churches in North Dakota, uh, taking a long train ride in the middle of the winter uh, to go encourage these Christians and speak with them. Uh, and even... Um, Samuel Allen, his host, encourages them to go to the hospital before one of the speaking engagements, and Machen says, no, I want to continue this engagement and, and speak to these people. Um, and, and Machen, you know, for all the criticisms of him, um, decides that um, this, is, this is what the Lord has called him to. The Lord has called him to this fight against liberalism and, the, and, and has called him to uh, loving and serving Christ's church. Uh, and I think it, it's an encouragement and a lesson for all of us uh, to follow <coughs> in his footsteps. Um, so that brings us to 1937. Uh, that spring, Alan McRae, uh, who's one of the original faculty members of Westminster, he'd been there for uh, you know eight, almost eight years. Um, he's a premillennialist. I think the only premillennialist on the, the faculty. He resigns from the faculty over at Westminster over all this tension. <laughs> Um, McRae, uh, not, not spelled like R. McRae, but M-A-C-R-A-E. Um, he, he believed the seminary had been taken over by a small alien group without an American Presbyterian background. So again, this uh, Scotsman and, and three Dutchmen um, didn't know how we do things. <coughs> McRae was concerned the seminary faculty were making an inflexible determination to enforce their own pre- peculiar notions by crushing the broad evangelical point of view, which in its earlier years made the PCUSA a great reformed church and not a mere sect. Um, so they're crushing the broad evangelical point of view 
which made the PCUSA so great. Um, and he doesn't, I don't think, explain what era he thinks was, was so great. Um, but I think this is the mindset of, this is the kind of the new school mindset, is we shouldn't, as Presbyterians, we shouldn't just, um, uh, you know, kind of cloister ourselves in our Presbyterianism, but we should be part of the, the broader evangelical scene. Uh, and that is, I think, one of the great tensions of Presbyterianism, and, and one that, to some degree, the OPC has, has come down on the side of saying, uh, no, it's okay that we're confessional Presbyterians and we do things uh, the way our confession teaches and the way that we understand Scripture. And it's okay that there are other Christians out there, but we don't have to uh, go unite with every church doing every uh, other thing, and we don't have to act like them either. <coughs> um, so uh, McRae's concern was that you know, this group that was once united against modernism was now turning... Uh, in on itself and against fundamentalism, uh, which has been the accusation that, that many have, have given. There's a, a famous article by John Frame, who um, is a professor at RTS Orlando. Uh, he's a minister in the PCA, formerly a minister in the OPC until the 80s. Um, Frame wrote an article called Machen's Warrior Children, uh, basically about um, how kind of once the fight was starting, they, the Machen's warrior children could never stop fighting. And that continues from Frame's point up until the 80s when he's writing this article, early 90s maybe. Uh, and I, I think you'd probably say it continues until today. Uh, and you can, you can read that and judge for yourself the merits of it. There's actually um, the Reform Forum podcast um, had an episode about uh, Machen's warrior children fairly recently. It's worth listening to. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think... I think Frame gets a lot of things wrong there, but that's been a common accusation of the OPC, that uh, it's just always wanting a fight, and so it, it turns on itself. Um, the General Assembly of 1937, so that's going to be summer, probably June of 1937, results in more conflict between these fundamentalists and confessionalist parties. Um, the confessionalists, again, represented by the Westminster faculty, and the fundamentalists by J. Oliver Buswell, Carl McIntyre, and others. Um, the issue of use of alcohol took a prominent place in this assembly. Uh, there was an overture, I think two overtures actually, um, basically acted, asking the OPC to take a stand against overture and saying it's unfitting for uh, uh, Christians to use alcohol in any kind of recreational form. Um, the overture said the assembly, uh, that the assembly should recommend to all the members of churches under their care to be found the fast, unflinching, and active friends of temperance, abstaining from all forms and fashions which would countenance to any extent of the sin of intemperance, avoiding even the appearance of evil, disentangling themselves from all implication with the traffic and manufacture, and especially presenting in their whole lives a standing and unvarying exemplification of the only uh, true principle of intemperance, total abstinence from anything that will intoxicate. The author of that could use uh, to read Strunk and White and, and learn about omitting needless words, but um, the point is that it's, it's unfitting for Christians to uh, manufacture and sell alcohol and, and to use alcohol. Um, the assembly votes this down uh, on the grounds, um, at least for some, that, um, again, Scripture and our confession are sufficient here, um, and Scripture doesn't uh, require this, although you know some... On the other side would have said, this is a good and necessary inference from Scripture. Um, 
but the, uh, the confessional party says no. Um, this is going beyond Scripture, and, and it, it's an infringement on Christian liberty uh, to, to add a new law to God's law. Um, immediately after this assembly, there's other conflict as well. Um, J.L. over Buswell, Carl McIntyre, and 12 other ministers. So that's 12 out of um, probably 50 or so at this point. It's, it's a pretty small crowd. They withdraw from the OPC less than a year after its creation um, and say we're no longer part of this denomination. And, and they leave with their churches. The next year, they um, start a new denomination called the Bible Presbyterian Senate. The Bible Presbyterian Senate. Um, so within um, two years of the formation of the OPC, there's now uh, two groups. Um, these groups, we're not going to go into depth on the history, um, but um, they're going to split again later in the 1950s uh, with one party kind of led by Carl McIntyre, uh, who at this point, Carl McIntyre is most known for his anti-communist um, speaking and, and writing. Uh, he, he's very politically fired up in, in this era of the Cold War. Um, and again, it was a very polarizing um, figure, interesting character. The other party has names that you would recognize, like Francis Schaeffer and Jay Adams, um, and other, other familiar names. Um, so the, the Francis Schaeffer and Jay Adams group, um, they eventually named themselves the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, no relation to the EPC of today. Um, and then that group is going to join with, remember uh, we talked about the RPCNA split in the 1890s to the old Old Light and New Light groups, and the, actually that's not the Old Light and New Light, but the um, General Synod and the, I can't remember. But anyway, one group is what's now the RPCNA. The other group um, is going to join with this Bible Presbyterian group in the 19, uh, I can't remember actually, 1960s maybe. Uh, and they form a church called the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. So this group that ultimately is spun off of the PCA, this group that spun off, or I'm sorry, the OPC, this group that spun off the, the RPCNA, joined to form the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. And then in the 1980s, maybe 83, the RPCES, um, which during this time had founded two institutions, Covenant College and Covenant Seminary, they're going to join into the PCA. Um, so this group that split off the OPC and the RPCNA um, ultimately become part of the, the PCA. Um, and that's how, uh, you know, you get connection of like Francis Schaeffer to the, the PCA. The other group, the Carl McIntyre group, is actually still around today. They're still a Bible Presbyterian church. Um, they, I think they've changed a lot since then, or not the kind of militant anti-communist uh, Carl McIntyre crowd. Uh, they've actually become on very good terms with the OPC, increasingly good terms over recent years. Uh, we're in um, ecclesiastical fellowship with them. Uh, which is just our, our way of saying, like, this is a, a sister denomination with us. Um, they come to our general assembly. We send someone to their general assembly. Um, a lot of involvement at Greenville Seminary with this crowd uh, as well. Um, okay, so that's kind of all that we'll talk about the Bible Presbyterian Church. Um, one thing I want to jump back a little bit is, um, remember I mentioned briefly last week when the OPC was formed, it didn't have the name Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, and I think this is an interesting topic because a lot of people, uh, you know, have a hard time with that name. I think a lot of people in the OPC today still don't like that name. Um, but when it was formed, it was called the Presbyterian Church of America. The PCA today is Presbyterian Church in America. The OPC started a Presbyterian Church of America. Uh, pretty quickly, the PCUSA files a lawsuit against the 
then PCA, now OPC, saying that this name is too similar to our name uh, and it's going to confuse people. So this, you know, this church of 2 million people is going to get confused with this church of 5,000 people. Um, the OPC made some effort to fight that in court, um, but ultimately decided it was just unreasonably expensive for them to uh, continue to pursue that. Um, so in 1939, three years into the church, the General Assembly has to select a new name for the OPC. Um, there are a handful of names proposed, which I just think is curious, so I'm going to read them. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian and Reformed Church of America, the North American Presbyterian Church, the American Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church of Christ, the Protestant Presbyterian Church of America, the Seceding Presbyterian Church of America, the Free Presbyterian Church of America, this is the best one, the True Presbyterian Church of the World, (laughs) (laughs) and the American Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, Pretty quickly, they um, voted down to, to four options, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Protestant Presbyterian Church of America, the Presbyterian and Reformed Church, and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And those names are debated by the assembly. They go through a whole series of votes uh, as they're considering that. Um, but you might remember, um, I, I read a quote a couple weeks ago from Machen um, earlier in the 30s, I think, uh, where Machen says, you know, I don't even like the term fundamentalism. I'm not a fundamentalist. I don't like the term. Um, and Machen says, why can't we just use the good old word orthodoxy? Um, which is, you know, we Orthodox, we believe the truth. Um, and that probably inspired the name Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And remember, Machen's dead at this point when this debate is happening. Um, Evangelical Presbyterian Church was voted down um, because people debated what evangelical meant, as they do today. Um, Presbyter- the Protestant Presbyterian Church of America was warmly championed this is a quote from, uh, I think, Har- oh, no, from the Presbyterian Guardian reporting on the time. was warmly championed through the almost eight hours of debate over the name. And finally, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was chosen on the sixth ballot. So they voted six times uh, to get to the uh, conclusion. Uh, it told the world exactly where its members stood in the controversy between Christianity and modernism. It declared that they took their confession of faith seriously. And it drew a precise theological distinction that was hardly capable of misunderstanding. As one member described it, it has teeth. Um, All right, so at that point, 1939, the OPC is uh, 5,549 members, 64 ministers, and 64 congregations. Um, I'm going to talk just uh, very quickly here. Um, I've been asked to stop a little bit earlier so people can go get their kids. So if you have kids after this, uh, go grab them. Um, the OP Church in Fort Lauderdale, just to give you a, a little idea of how the OPC starts to come to the south. Um, at the time, you know, Fort Lauderdale, nor- just north of Miami, um, around 1900, there wasn't a town. It was just a little agricultural, agricultural area. Um, it, before World War II, Fort Lauderdale starts to grow fairly quickly um, as um, northerners start to relocate to Florida. That stalls somewhat through World War II, but then it really takes off after World War II. Um, so before World War II, there's a PCUSA and a PCUS, the so Northern and Southern Presbyterian Churches, both in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, I don't know the origin of that PCA, PCUSA congregation. Um, but there's a, uh, a Dutch opto- optometrist and ruling elder at, at the PCUSA church named Clarence Edward, um, who 
saw his church becoming liberal, and he um, decided it was time to leave the PCUSA and, and form a new church. So he communicated in 1940 with the Christian Reformed Church, uh, kind of the Dutch equivalent at that time of the OPC, uh, from a different uh, historical tradition, but theologically uh, similar in many ways. And he asked the CRC, um, which would have been you know, dominant in um, Michigan and uh, northern areas also, to, to form a church in Fort Lauderdale. And that didn't pan out, but they encouraged him to contact the OPC. So somehow he gets in contact with the OPC, and the Presbytery of New Jersey sends a young seminary graduate named uh, John Hills uh, as an evangelist to Fort Lauderdale in 1941, uh, and they form the first OP congregation south of Sandy Springs, Maryland. Um, apparently the prices during World War, World War II were going up and up there. His family kept having to move because it was so expensive to live there. Uh, and um, according to the history from the 50th anniversary of the OPC, he decided that um, the way for this church to stick and continue to be supported by the, the OPC was for them to build a, a church building and a manse for him to live in. And so he made this big effort to get that built. Um, and the church continued until it left the OPC, uh, I think in the 90s or something. And I, I don't um, know the details of that. Um, that's, that's the OPC coming to the, the south. Next time, uh, Matthew I will talk briefly about um, OP Church coming to Georgia. It's really the next church in the south. Um, all right, so I'm going to stop there. But again, if people have questions, I can take questions. But if you have kids, um, make sure you go get them so they don't run free. Yeah, Westminster Seminary is not an, an OPC seminary then or ever. It's always been independent. Correct. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Ed's saying deliberately because of what happened at Princeton. I think there were conversations at times about whether or not to change that, but yeah, that, that never changed. Yeah, so the Independent Board of Foreign Missions, six months after the OPC is formed, removes Machen as head. Uh, and it's at that point, oh, I don't know if we're going to get into this or not, but the OPC forms its own foreign mission board and starts to send its own missionaries. The Independent Board really stay, maintains ties with the Bible Presbyterian Church, largely. Say it again. Uh, Machen's defrocked in... June, beginning of June of 1936, and continues as president of the, the, uh, it was, the independent board was not part of the PCOSA. It was independent, right? So, yeah. and I think Machen was not reordained in the OPC. Like he, he considered, and others considered his, uh, suspension by the OPC as illegitimate, um, that it, his ministerial credentials were not affected, but... Yeah, the independent board is always, and I think there might still be some continuation. It's not called that anymore, but there's some um, foreign missions that the Bible Presbyterian Church works with that I think is the, the, the heir of the independent board of foreign missions.